Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Craig Flood, recording out of Boise, Idaho, and I'm here with John, and he's going to talk about why Islam is so unashamed of barbarism. Also, in this podcast, you'll hear John mention a few times, he'll say, reach out to me and write me, and I just want you to know if you do want to reach out to John, you can email him at johnsallypatrick at gmail. That's John, J-O-H-N, Sally, S-A-L-L-Y, and then Patrick, P-A-T-R-I-C-K at gmail.com. Good morning, folks. I don't know what time it is uh, in this modern world. Uh, we say something and it gets recorded and it turns up in the most interesting places, at most interesting times. Uh, do write to me if anything like that happens. Uh, I really enjoy those stories. Uh, they happen frequently and uh, a wonderful source of pleasure of the best variety. So, uh, obviously, like everybody else, I've been watching what's going on in Israel for some time. And I thought, I'd like to talk about it in a slightly different way, because we get, get bombarded with what I think are very shallow approaches. I want to read a quotation to you first. Um, and while I'm reading it, you can think about who might have said it, and we'll go from there. We renounce you. Enmity and hate shall forever reign between us, till you believe in Allah alone. Allah's word to his people was, O prophet, wage war on the infidels and hypocrites, and be ruthless. Their abode is hell, an evil fate. Such is the foundation of the relationship between the infidel and the Muslim. Battle, animosity, and hatred directed from the Muslim to the infidel, and we consider this justice and kindness to them. That was written by and published by Osama bin Laden on September the 21st, 2007. Now, you don't hear the politicians of the world talking about that mindset, but that mindset is what we're dealing with, and they are constantly surprised to find out what it's like, and that they don't really believe it can be true, and they need to look at history. The long battle between Judeo-Christian thought and Islamic thought is peppered with plenty of examples of the, of the way they are brainwashed, enculturated into it a view that we would like to think is brainwashing, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's just as valid as ours in terms of how they get to it, although I don't think so. It's been a war from the beginning. The difference between Christianity and Islam can be easily demonstrated in the way that both at different times controlled the whole of the Mediterranean basin. Now, Christianity went from Jesus to spread through the whole of the Mediterranean basin in less than a hundred years, and there was no army involved. The first statement about Christians by non-Christians in the Acts of the Apostles is, behold how these people love one another. We have got so many gifts from our history that we don't acknowledge as being gifts from history, and we think they're human nature, and they're not. The best example of this I know uh, in recent times is Tom Holland, who's a very good um, writer of popular history, 
and uh, he, uh, the book that propelled him into some degree of uh, public exposure was Dominion, which is in fact uh, a story of the history of Islam in many ways. But as he studied these things, he, he became more and more aware that all the things he treasured most from his own culture had actually come from Christianity. That's quite a statement. And if you want to track it down a bit more, there's a, there's a website run from Britain called Unbelievable. And if you put Tom Holland and Tom Wright into their website, you'll get a lovely interview. Now, Tom Wright is probably the best uh, academic theologian of, of orthodox, small o uh, persuasion, who can also talk to people. Uh, so he, he and Tom Holland talking on this website uh, is a beautiful account. And uh, at one point, uh, Tom Holland says, Jesus and the apostles, I'm paraphrasing freely, put a bomb under Western culture, or a lot of little bombs, and they keep going off. And Tom Wright's face is a picture to watch as he says, yes, 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 that's exactly right. That's what happens. Um, so Tom Holland, uh, as far as I can see, is now a Christian. Uh, brought to that point by looking at uh, the history of the world. Here's another example of a man who's, uh, uh, well, he was a friend of uh, uh, Pope Benedict. They were at school together, and they did have a, uh, quite an interaction somewhere around, oh, 2010, something like that. I can't remember exactly. Uh, but uh, Jürgen Habermas, uh, I mean, he, he writes somewhat pompously, but nevertheless... Uh, you can get over the big words fairly easily, but he does say this. Universal egalitarianism, from which spring the ideals of freedom and a collective life in solidarity, the autonomous conduct of life, uh, individual morality of conscience, human rights, democracy, they are all the legacy of the Judaic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love. Uh, there's a, a German academic uh, saying the same thing in more pompous terms. We are all products of long histories. Why some histories survive longer than others is a question. Whether the Western world will go on for very long, I don't know. I absolutely no doubt that Christianity will not be in the least bit shattered by a collapse of the Western world. In fact, it would probably do the church a great deal of good because we would suddenly start taking our faith a lot more seriously. Uh, churches always fill up when things get bad. Uh, the trouble with 9-11 was the effect didn't last very long and it didn't go very deep. And so we went back to our hedonistic ways very quickly. And they're not satisfying. Now, particularly your age group with young, with young children in, in school, and dealing with the, the results of uh, the lockdown and all the disasters that went with it, where one generation has been robbed of their educational potential and had, they've lost a huge amount of earnings in their lifetime, those kids that were locked down in kindergarten, early, early stages, because their, their language acquisition is now clearly way behind. 
uh, and their writing and all the rest. It's not their fault. It, we we did that to them by prioritizing a reductive view of what life is without bothering to talk to anybody who might think more deeply about it, and not even to talk to uh, serious pediatricians who were told, no, no, you can't stop a child seeing human faces in the full from their teachers. Uh, that, that will not be teaching. I mean, if you cover up the mouth, how on earth do you expect children to learn to articulate? Because what they do is they have mirror parts of their, their brain, even in a baby, there's a, in front of the motor cortex, there's a little bit that lights up but doesn't produce any movement to begin with, but they're copying what they're seeing. That's why they suddenly start doing things uh, very fluently, very quickly. Uh, our brains are amazing. And what we did with, with COVID and uh, the management was brain damage, mm. as well as all the other things that are being talked about. And there are critical phases. Uh, the most delightful, in a way, example of that was the first time we went to Africa. And uh, I, I needed for my interest to get around the villages. So we were off walking in the Itombe Mountains uh, in villages a, a couple of days' walk from anywhere. Uh, so we certainly went to villages where the children had never seen a white person. So... They wanted to come and look at my hands and see if they rubbed up black. Uh, what what had I got on to change my skin color? That's a, that's a lovely occasion. But uh, the missionaries were penetrating the area. And one of the things that uh, Africans love bright colors. Uh, and because we have dark skin, they can wear them. And so they, they look great. Uh, but they loved our Christmas cards because they were bright colors. But I was astonished to see Christmas cards stuck on the wall of a mud hut. And not infrequently, they were the wrong way up from our point of view. And then I realized they don't see the pictures. These are just colors and patterns. And if you don't learn to do that switch from a 2D image to a 3D image in your mind at the right stage, you can't do it. There are critical phases. So our children are very good at that. I mean, they see things in 2D and they translate them into 3D without even thinking about it. But if that hadn't happened, it's going to be interesting to see what aspects of learning in particular. We see it's language. It won't be that because they had too, many, too much screen, not too little uh, at other times. We're only... What's, what's the word I want? We're only at the beginnings of the understanding of how the brain works. But that's where we're at. And one of the bits of the brain that appears to have been most damaged by COVID uh, is the hypothalamus, the most ancient bit of the brain in evolutionary terms, and uh, certainly the bit where things are processed that matter, uh, uh, that makes us different from the animals. It's a hypothalamus. And it looks as though that got damaged too. So... Um, Back to the main, uh, the main idea. So we've had lots of traumas going on, but the ones associated with the rise of a, of Islamic jihadism, starting from Bin Laden, uh, is is one of the biggest in the last little while. But I just want people to to go a lot further back. Now, the book to read if you're if you're really interested, I think, is Batier Or. That's a strange name. It's B apostrophe A T. 
Y apostrophe EOR, I think. Uh, but it's the decline of Christianity under Islam. A very brave woman who wrote it. Uh, basically, she documented what happened. Uh, the only point that I'm going to make at the moment, meant to illustrate the very different views that Christians and Muslims have, uh, there's something called dimitude, uh, which is what... Uh, Bin Laden was writing about there where he says that they have to learn to accept their lower status. In the Islamic world, if you were an infidel, when they found you, they get you on your knees and say, you can convert to Islam or we'll chop your head off. Not surprisingly, most people who were offered that option chose to become a Muslim. They didn't do it to Christians and Jews to begin with. I mean, their animosity, their, their anti-Semitism in its current virulent form is a relatively recent phenomenon. Jews and Christians and uh, Muslims live together in various places with relative uh, peace for a long while. But to the Jews and Christians and other people with a major book that was sort of later added, they simply had to accept lower status they had to wear symbols on their outer clothing so that they could be recognized. They had to pay horrendous tax rates. And when a Muslim was walking along a path, they had to step into the mud to let them pass. It was a, a relationship which was constantly rubbing in the superiority of Islam. Dimitude. Now, the taxes were so high that the only way you could keep your tax burden under control was you had to give a son to the Muslims to be trained to be a soldier. They were called the Janissaries. And that was because, the, this was in the Ottoman time, the leader of the Ottomans knew that he was in danger of being assassinated. So the Janissaries were trained to be his personal guard. They were also the most brutal fighters. They were trained to be brutal. Uh, and he knew he could trust them because if anything went wrong, they were executed on the spot. So they were totally loyal to him. And they were trained to kill the people who had borne them in the first place, so to speak. Not individually as such, but Christians. And, of course, to, to keep the leader of the Ottoman Empire intact. I mean, I think three out of four, the first four leaders of the Islamic sect were assassinated. I mean, if you want to get assassinated, lead an Islamic sect and you'll probably get assassinated because there are other people wanting to step into your shoes. It's brutal. There's nothing like Christ in their story. And of course, what's happening now is there's a lot of trouble going on in their narrative all great religions have a narrative that's central to them. Now, the Christian narrative survived the 19th century intellectual attack, and it's basically over now, in my view. Uh, it's a mopping up procedure at this stage. But certainly when I first went to university, and the, the bit before that, it was very much a period when I said, oh, well, uh, Christianity is a suitable myth for women and children, but can't be true. And anybody who's smart 
gives up being a Christian follows science without any understanding of what they were saying at that point. But now that has changed. Darwin had a lot to do with the rise of that particular view because it sort of justified um, the more egregious forms of business enterprise that treated people as things. And they said, well, survival of the fittest was not something that Darwin said. It was, uh, I forget who it was now who said it, but he was very concerned to to justify uh, fairly egregious, uh, aggressive capitalism. So that process worked very well for them. But they didn't realize they'd thrown out the baby with the bathwater, and now that's coming back. See, it took the horror of October the 7th to bring a lot of people to life and say, oh my goodness, that is so barbaric. Now, the young who have been trained not to think about those things in that way at all, it was appalling how successful that brainwashing has been when you saw how our young people in university started what's the word I want, demonstrating, if not rioting, on the streets in favour of Hamas, particularly university students. They had been so dulled by their education that they had no sensitivity to what was going on. We have made them barbaric. Um, A barbarian is somebody who has no history, and it's history that uh, created the different world. Amazingly, I had a an unexpected conversation yesterday when I actually were getting some beer um, for Christmas for those who come and like a glass of beer, including myself. Um, and there was nobody in the, the beer store. And I picked up my purchase and I don't know how the conversation started, but we had a conversation. I guess I think I asked her, I looked at her, I said, do you have children? And she's smart. She said, I've got grandchildren. I said, she said, I've even got a great-grandchild. I said, so have I. We got ours, first one, uh, in the recent past. Uh, and then we started talking, and I said, uh, what, have you ever read the Narnia stories to your children? She said, ah, oh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Wardrobe. She said, a school teacher read that to us. That's a different school, isn't it, where the Narnia stories were read in school. It was the best bit of uh, elementary school when I went to school. Every day, the last 15 minutes, most teachers read a story because they knew that all children love stories, and so they introduced them to good stories that children could enjoy. Uh, I didn't get the Narnia stories. I don't know whether they were actually published at that point, but uh, similar sorts of stories. But the, this lady remembered the Narnia stories. I said, <laughs> you remember that from school? You can't remember much else, can you? And she said, no. And then we we talked about the nature of why we enjoyed that story and what role stories play in our lives. And she was very interested. I said, get get a set of Narnia stories so that you can read them to your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. They'll love you for it. I mean, one of the, the recurrent images in our home is of Sally reading to children. She's a brilliant reader to children. And... uh, uh, so I, I can remember afternoons where the children sat and listened to her reading for a couple of hours, no problem. And just recently she got a, an email from one of her 
granddaughter's saying one of her happiest memories of childhood is of coming to visit Granny and sitting on the couch and having her read, not surprisingly, given that she had that innate sensitivity that she's done a, a course in English literature and she even found some decent teachers, which is not altogether likely in the English department these days. I was reading, well, this week somewhere of a young woman saying, I went to Cambridge in England to the English department. I thought, <laughs> you didn't get what you expected there because the English department in in Cambridge was taken over by the Marxists years ago and has never recovered. And she said, I expected to have an English account of the great writers like Hardy and Jane Austen. She said, I didn't hear them at all. I had to read books by women who were preaching feminism in the form of a novel. The English department in many places has been taken over by ideology, by Marxism in a soft form. And we don't begin to teach our kids how to deal with these things. We need to deal with it ourselves to realize why we don't like it, if we don't like it. I mean, I, when I went to university from a, a working class background where I had seen my the generation before me, my parents and my grandparents, they'd had tough lives. The goods were beginning to flow down, but they were tough lives. And it, they certainly didn't have fair outcomes, if you mean that in terms of equality of outcome. No. And yet we all watched Downton Abbey, you know. You can think about that for a long while. So when I went to university, I was, I was sympathetic to left-wing ideas. In fact, I wouldn't have gone to university but for a left-wing uh, program in the city of Birmingham ran, which gave me my scholarship to go through school without any costs. Um, and that was a, that was a post-World War II working-class response to saying, after the First World War, we gave our lives and got nothing for it. This time we need something. And they got health care and they got an educational change. Both were very good to begin with. Both have been perverted, as they always are, in various ways since. So I was, what should I say, sympathetic to a left-wing understanding of the world. And, uh, you know, I helped with the selling of magazines that were talking about colonialism in Africa in the 1950s when I was at school. But I can pinpoint the moment at which Marxism died for me Absolutely precisely. Uh, my passion in medical school was not medicine, it was rock climbing and mountaineering. And uh, so somewhere around 1962, I guess it would be, uh, somewhere around there anyway, the eastern part of Europe behind the Iron Curtain began to open up a little bit. And the Caucasus Mountains, the Carpathian Mountains in the Czech Republic have got some good climbing. And so my climbing partner and I, Alan Wilson, went off to the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia. In fact, it was hilarious when I went for, to tell the uh, dean that I, was, I needed a holiday and I was going to take two weeks off. It was orthopedics. I didn't care about orthopedics, so I never did any orthopedics anyway. And uh, the dean was... Off. The, the dean was a nice man and would 
understand in a different way, but the vice dean was a very upper crust uh, English gentleman uh, with uh, all their warts and all. He once said to a contemporary of mine who was working for him and had been working all night and had gone up to his room in the hospital and fallen asleep, fully dressed, and then got a call from the ward sister saying, Mr. Charles is on the ward. He was supposed to meet him at the door. So he rushed down, somewhat dishevelled, and Mr. Charles looked at him and said, Driscoll, get your man to press your trousers. And it, that was his life. He had a butler. There were two or three of the consultants in the hospital who came from that neck of the woods, you know, where they... they would, one of them lived in the Ritz Hotel. He didn't bother with the house. Just across Green Park. Could walk to work, so to speak. Uh, that was the world... Uh, was still happening in the professions, and at the same time we were beginning to protest other things. So uh, I went to see the dean, and it was Mr. Charles, who, because the dean was away, so I said, Sir, uh, I just wanted to, to tell you that I'm going to take a break for two weeks because I need a holiday. And he, he thought that was perfectly reasonable. And he said, Where are you going? And I said, I'm going to Czechoslovakia. He said, But that's a communist country, isn't it? I said, yes, sir, uh, but it also has some of the best climbing in Europe. And they've just opened the borders so that we can go. He said, get yourself a young woman, go to the south of France, I'll give you an extra week. And he was serious. Now, we went to Czechoslovakia. And uh, we realized when we got there that they thought we were going to stay in their youth camps, so we had no intention of doing that, and we didn't. And so we slept in the heather the first night we got to the mountains, and there was a, a mountain hut nearby, so there was obviously a lot of young people there, so we went along to see what was going on. And we were something of a something new for them. Uh, they thought we were some kind of publicity stunt because our equipment was so much better than theirs, and it was just ordinary equipment to us. But that particular evening, there was a, a Hungarian photographer who'd been sent to Paris to photograph Paris from a communist point of view. And so the other students were asking him about it, and he gave an account of uh, Paris, which was basically the, the wealthy rich rubbing the faces of the poor in the dirt, you know, um, communist propaganda, which I didn't appreciate. But the next day, we decided, we got on well with these other climbers, and so we went out to climb together, and we split up. So I ended up climbing with this Hungarian photographer, and we were halfway up the the face of Lomnicer, and the next bit was a bit hairy. So the Hungarian guy said, um, I need a cigarette. So we sat on a rock ledge looking at this tremendous panoramic view. And then he turned to me and he said, you didn't believe a word of what I said last night, did you? He spoke reasonable English. And I said, no, it wasn't true. He said, yeah, but you don't understand. I said, what don't I understand? He said... I had no way of knowing whether there was an agent provocateur amongst those students, so I had to speak the party line. Now, we've got to the same state in our universities. Now, I nearly fell off the rock, at that, off the cliff at that point. Marxism died on the spot because I, the one thing I did not want was a totalitarian government, and that's what they'd got as we talked about it. And if you allow a small group of people to think that they know best for everyone else. That's what you always get. That's what they're trying to do now. And we have to react. And I think we are beginning to react slowly. But 
Islam is the same. The, the, why did science never take off in the Islamic world? Experimental science, which is the crown jewel of the Western world, never happened. They were way ahead of us uh, in the 12th century, 11th and 12th centuries. There was one guy who tried to do science and he had to feign madness to survive being killed for it. And of course, all the great scholars got as far from the imams as they could and would travel as it was then. The safest place to be was Spain, which was Cordoba was the one place where Christians, Jews and Muslim scholars talked to one another. And they don't talk about that period. We need to know their history. It's amazing the effect it has on somebody next to you on a plane who's a Muslim. And then you say, yeah. I appreciate Ibn Sina and Ibn Rushd. Uh, they were ahead of the game at that time. The fact that I know their Arabic names immediately stops them in their tracks. And then we can talk. And, of course, on a plane, sitting with someone you'll never meet again, he will say something. I, said, I would always ask him, do you resent the extra security you get? And you know what the answer is. They're sensible. They say, no, not at all. I'd be very concerned if I wasn't getting more concern, more investigation, because I'm terrified of these people. Who wouldn't be? They kill first and ask questions afterwards. That's not a good good approach for anyone. So we need to know something about their history. A, a lot is happening at the moment. I talked a little bit earlier in this wandering discussion, not even discussion, monologue, about how slow we were to train and how little response we have in a historical way, to the events around us. Well, the one about science is worth getting to know a little bit. So do take make a, a little effort. Uh, if you want a book to start with, start with um, Bernard Lewis's What Went Wrong. It's a, a little penguin, it's a little paperback. It's thin, you can read it quickly. Uh, I was very, very impressed that George Bush found Bernard Lewis within a couple of weeks of 9-11. Because Bernard Lewis is the best uh, non-Islamic scholar of the Islamic world. And he loved the Islamic world in many ways. But he also understood it. So he pointed out to Bush that whenever the Muslims strike, you have to push back. Because if you don't, they'll strike again. Because they believe they are called to rule the world. Now, if they lose, they only go back to regroup. He was able to illustrate that to him. So, Bin Laden, we, we renounce you. Enmity and hate shall forever reign between us. That's it. They believe that's what Allah has called them to until they submit. Islam means submission. It's totally fatalistic. Allah is not bound by rationality. God, for us, is rationality. That's where it comes from for us. That's a very different picture. I've wandered around all over the place, but uh, every now and again I'll get uh, a comment from people who say, well, you gave me a jumping-off point, and that's fine. Send me criticisms. Right. Get me thinking about things. I need stimulus all the while. God bless you all. Thank you guys for listening to the podcast this week. We hope you guys enjoyed it. If you do, feel free to leave a review. We would love to hear your thoughts and share it with a friend, and we'll see you guys next week.